Hi, and welcome to the Everywhere Podcast. We're a global community of founders and operators who've come together to support the next generation of builders. So the premise of the podcast is just that, founders interviewing other founders about the trials and tribulations of building a company. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Neha from Bondside, who's going to tell us a little bit more about her vision for what are we calling them now? Not SMBs. (laughs) (laughs) For multi-unit retailers. (laughs) I love it. Multi-unit retailers. I'm not sure I could get that out in one sentence, but awesome. So I'd love to kick off with this, which is, you know, as we think about like founder archetypes, I always think about, okay, there's the, the, founder, the passionate founder who sees the vision and is just like going to get there by any means. And we work with a lot of technical founders, but we also work with like the empath founder. And I kind of consider you the ultimate empath founder in that you were running a business for many years and you experienced this problem that you're solving with Bonside firsthand. So take us back to early days of starting the company and some of the insights from Globar that informed the new company. Yes, of course. And thank you again, Jenny, for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I think you do such a great job of facilitating conversations. So excited right. for this. Going back to early days of Bonside, early days of my career, of uh, started my career at Bain and, and then went to Globar, built Globar, and then went to, to Bonside. In all those learnings, I think the biggest thing that kind of jumped out to me was that there was this beautiful ecosystem of venture capital that had been designed for the tech industry. And when you think about traditional financing, the tech industry had all of these things layered on top of it that really catered to them. So they had venture capital, but they also had venture debt. And conversely, when you looked at you know the rest of the businesses, which are 99% of businesses, they didn't have that beautiful layer that existed on top of traditional financing. And so instead, they were just directly exposed to all of the nitty gritty of traditional financing anytime they need the capital. And maybe, you know, like a shark loan or two along the way. And when I was sitting in the seat of being a brick and mortar business owner, I found myself really unsatisfied by that. I looked at my peers that were building tech companies. I thought to myself, why do you have such amazing options? And I feel like I'm jumping off a cliff of options. Why is there nothing in between that actually serves a business model like mine? And it was that thought that really led me to think about well, if I were to design an instrument from scratch, if I ignored all of the existing infrastructure in today's world, what would I actually craft for myself? And what I knew was with a brick and mortar business, you are essentially repeating a playbook. It's really the only business like this that almost operates like a step function, where once you open one location and a second location and a third location, the way you're growing is by doing that over and over again at a faster pace with more efficiency. There is no, all of a sudden, we're going to go and launch cloud services and all these things that require learning a new problem from scratch. And so the consistency of that is something that's really underwritable. If you can do that three times and you have an existing footprint there that's generating top line and generating bottom line, why are we not using those and treating those as individual business units to actually unlock financing in a more efficient manner? And I think a lot of those insights came to me when I was sitting in that business owner seat, right? Of these were my problems. These were the things that I was thinking about. This is what was keeping me up at night. And I just got so excited by, hey, I think there's a solution here when you actually identify the root cause of the problem. And is there an opportunity not just to build a solution for myself, but to actually build it for the broader industry? We call that the ultimate empath. So I love it. 
So as you were thinking of this idea, like you'd already gone through building a startup, what gave you um, not the inspiration because we got the inspiration, but the, you know, running companies is really hard. Like I sold my company and then ended up running another one. I felt pretty exhausted by the second one. So what gave you kind of that like mojo to be like, okay, I have it in me to do this again. Yeah. You know, I think at the time, I think it's just the phase of life that I'm in right now. I don't know that I consciously decided I have this in me. I just had it in me. I'm in this phase of my life right now where I have so much energy to give. And I was so aware of that. I I don't have kids. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have any real responsibilities. And we are all living in this world. We are all shaping this world. We are all shaping the future of this world. And so if I want to drive a meaningful portion of that, then right now is my best time to go and run at that. That is what motivates me every day is, you know, I look at all these people around us and I'm so in awe of what they're accomplishing and what they're building and what they're doing. And I'm like, well, how am I any different? Why can't I be one of them? And I have right now all the reasons to go be one of them. And so I think it's just that sort of phase of life that I'm in right now where it's, it's, I have that energy in in me to go do it. And so why not? I love that. So tell us a little bit more about Bonsai, the zoom out big mission of the company and where you want to take it. Yeah. So. Today, we are really focused on financing brick and mortar businesses. And if I think about really what the vision is behind that, what we want to do is, you know, I think the question that folks ask when someone says, oh, I'm building a startup, one of the first few questions is, oh, are you venture backed? Or did you raise venture capital? I want to change that question. I want that question to be, how did you capitalize your business? And if that's the question we're asking, then we've normalized that there are multiple ways to finance and scale growth. And I think we're starting to see that, right? Like I think most people now, there's a lot of headlines around, oh, so-and-so bootstrapped from zero dollars to billion. And it's starting to become a little bit more of a thing, but it's almost a headline when someone does it versus it being normalized as, hey, this is how we're all going to do it. And so our mission at, at Bondside is to really drive that narrative and to drive that change in the brick and mortar universe where it's almost like, oh, did you did you use Bondside to scale? That's how we think about our, our vision here. And so part of that is, I think the way that we think about it is it's an intersection of financing, but also data because we're ingesting a ton of data. Brick and mortars have never had more data that behind their business than they do today and community, right? We're involving these investors that have a passion for these businesses and and want to improve their locality and be a part of their stories. And so really our long-term vision is rooted in expanding on our financing arm, but also our data intelligence and our community. And so that's where we see the future going. Amazing. And how does educating the market come into this vision? I imagine, as you said, we're starting to shift our psyche from venture-backable really as the only option or like getting a loan, which is not an option for many small businesses. So how are you thinking about getting the word out there? Any like interesting ways that you've kind of thought of the last year of running the business? Yeah, Jenny, all we do is educate. All of our marketing <laughs> is is educating and it's so fun, right? I think we really think about educating as an opportunity to storytell. And I love storytelling. And so it's, Every piece of marketing from Bondside is meant to shift the way that you think about things. And so I'll give you a few examples. One is our content engine, notes.bondside.com, where we write 60-second reads. And it's just very intuitive and very, you know, seventh grader English to help folks understand the simplicity and the beauty of brick and mortar and why it's something worth watching. Another example is when we bring deals to our private network for investing the way that we present those deals to the marketplace 
we are very thoughtful about the language that we use to describe the deal and to describe the financing. And so it's little levers, little things like that, where it's like every single thing that is external facing at our business is something that we have spent time thinking about exactly what words we used and make sure we did not miss the opportunity to educate our end consumer. So there's all sorts of things we're doing. We're going to be launching a couple of events later this year. And I'm really excited for those because I think we're going to bring interesting conversations to life in a really fun way that people won't expect. And so I can't wait to do that. So when we first met, the thing that I'd heard from other people were, I don't care what she's building. I would back her. And I heard that from multiple people. So when I was around investing, I actually didn't know what you were doing. I mean, maybe someone sent me the deck, but it was more like, you need to meet this woman. Like she's a force. That phrase came up quite a bit. So I'd love any insights on this kind of passion that you have, this force that people seem to identify. Where do you think that comes from? Is that, you know, something that you were encouraged by a moment, a person growing up or that drive? Any insights there? First of all, that's so sweet. And and I appreciate that. And multiple people said it to me. They were like, (laughs) that's too nice. (laughs) I attribute a lot to family and, and my parents and my upbringing. I think One of the things that was really defining in my childhood, and and if you ask my parents about this, they talk about it, of if there's something that I'm compelled by or or if there's like a vision that that I see and I really see it, I won't stop until I get there. I get laser focused on it and excited by it and inspired by it. And I want to, I can't sleep and and think about anything else other than it. My first example of that was in high school. I I did classical Indian dancing growing up and uh, I would go every Saturday for my classical Indian dance class. And I remember I was always the worst one at the dance class. I never practiced or I never had it in me. I was never, I never wanted to be there. And even my dance teacher was like, come on, just like show up, just like practice once. And then once you kind of do enough classes and you gain enough skill, you have this like little like mini graduation performance where it's a four hour solo dance performance. And my teacher was like, okay, you're, you're ready for it. And I was like, what? Four, I was like, four hours by yourself? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's a whole thing. Wow. So we decided I was going to do it. And at the beginning of the summer, all of a sudden, I was just like, I want to nail this. Like, I want this to be the best performance that I could ever possibly give. And I created an entire boot camp around. I was just like in so intense about it. And I remember both my mom and my dance teacher were just like, what? You didn't even care about this. Like, I had to force you to show up to class. And I think ever since that moment, I sort of knew, okay, if I really want to do something, I'm going to get it done. With Bonsai, I'm not stopping until we accomplish our mission. Like, this is everything I want to be doing right now. Well, it's also a good segue into the round that you recently announced, because this is definitely not the easiest time to be raising capital for your own business. And so love to hear a little bit more about how that was raising money, any challenges around that, and you know, generally any market trends around fundraising. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think fundraising, it was very different raising my seed round than a pre-seed round. One, it was two very different macro environments. And then two, it's it's really different when you're raising off of an idea where it's so solely about the person versus when you're raising off a, a little bit of a proof of concept where it's a little bit more mixed. And I think in navigating the fundraising process, I think I really felt the switch when I stopped thinking about it as the fundraising process. And I just said, okay, I'm just going to forget. I don't do well when I try and play the game and join the hype circle. Like I think back to when interviewing for jobs, people had all these like interviewing circles and things like that. And and I didn't join any of it because I was like, it's actually a distraction from my creativity. I just want to do what naturally feels right. 
And same thing with fundraising. I was like reading all of the fundraising things and all. And I was just like, this is a distraction. I just need to go with intuitively what feels right. And when I started operating it that way, I felt a lot more momentum. And that really came from just saying to myself, forget everything I know about fundraising. I am building a business. I would like to add capital. And I would like to bring out on an external person to provide me with capital so that I can go chase this a little bit further. I have some immediate hires I want to make. I have some immediate investments that I want to make. And so I need capital to do that. And I feel good about bringing someone on and I want to give them a bit of ownership in exchange for that. Right. And you actually break it down to the fundamentals of what you are doing. It makes it way easier to set up a conversation and actually just talk to someone like they're a human and have a two-way expectation where it's like, hey, Jenny, let me tell you a bit about my business. Let's see if you're the right person to come in and be my financial partner on this business. And that sort of conversation is just a lot more natural versus, okay, I've got my pitch deck and I like, you know, I'm going to set up my intro call and I'm going to tell them like, hey, other people are talking. Like I got to know in the next three days. It was just way more natural. And as a result, I love our cap table. I really feel like it's so representative of the business that we're building. And every person on there is just a great human being and really passionate about what we're doing in some way, shape or form. So yeah. That's awesome. When you were raising either your pre-seed or your seed, did you get any skepticism around helping brick and mortar, right? So I think there's definitely a sentiment of, okay, well, you know, the high street is dying or, you know, whatever some of these things are. And so was that a challenge at all or not so much? You know, Jenny, what's interesting is I feel like that conversation was really big a few years ago where retail is dead. And I think coming out of a pandemic, almost actually eliminated that conversation because we all realized that if retail is dead, so is our culture and community and any sense of life, right? Because retail was dead for a period of time and we all felt it. And none of us ever want to live in our homes or just over technology ever again. And so I honestly didn't face that statement as much or that controversy as much, as much as I faced SMB financing is hard. And that was something that I heard time and time again, and more than disagree with that, or more than feel like it was feedback on the business, I disagreed with the the generalization of that statement of SMB financing is hard. So financing 99% of the businesses in this country is hard. Do you realize how big of a statement that is? And do you really think that every single business in that nine? You don't think there's actually a way to even carve it down to 3% and make that financing easy? That was the question that I really pushed when I heard that feedback. And I would say, okay, talk to me about why you feel that way. What have you seen that supports that? And that supports all 99% of business? Or are you actually just talking about 10% of businesses or 20% of businesses? So I would say that was more the feedback point. Back to your superpower of educating people, <laughs> helping them <laughs> understand where their own uh, biases come from. I love it. Can you talk a little bit about some of the companies that you serve? I mean, you don't have to tell us the names, but uh, more kind of the challenges that they have or kind of what the demographic is. Love to just kind of get that out there. Yes, 100%. I love the businesses we serve because they are the businesses that I frequent. They are multi-unit services-based businesses. They are the emerging brands and concepts that are so brilliant at providing the service. That falls into, for us, generally three categories. The first is food and beverage. The second is health and wellness. And then the third is kind of traditional services or clinic-based care. So think like auto services or a clinic or a daycare. So those three categories are really where we're laser focused. The beauty of these businesses is many of them were started in the last five years and they have seen rapid growth and expansion because of customer loyalty and a desire to start to feel like you belong to 
the businesses that you frequent. And they place roots in communities where people own homes and send their kids to school. And so people are really looking to build that community within their brick and mortars. And maybe not consciously, right? Not like, oh, every Tuesday I go to the coffee store and I have my like game night there. Maybe you do. But just, oh, every morning or at least three mornings a, a week, I go to this coffee shop and I get coffee. That is your community. That's part of your interactions. And so those are the businesses that we really serve. And what's interesting about that is, you know, a lot of these businesses, when they get started, we don't necessarily finance their first location. We come in after their second or their third. They get their first location off the ground by leveraging family and friends capital, or maybe their existing capital, or they've got a scrappy way to, to be able to build out that location. Or maybe they've taken on like an SBA loan of sorts. As they start to think about continued growth, sure, you can go the route of bringing in venture capital, and we can have a longer discussion about that. But Let's say you say, okay, I'm not going to take on venture capital for, for my location expansion. Bank financing isn't necessarily catering directly to this, these business owners, right? Because bank financing is built off of, you need operating history and you need to actually personally be wealthy so that you can guarantee this, this loan. And if you think about that, it's like, well, why is that? And, and you know, I often say this, the requirements for banking are for bank loans hasn't been iterated on in, in like a century. And so it's, if you think about back in the day, who started businesses, it was the already wealthy. And so they could personally guarantee their loans. And that's why I think with the state of how bank bank financing is done, it's very needed for a modern player to cater to these modern brands. And that's where we play. Awesome. What would you say is one idea that experts in your field say that you disagree with? SMB financing is hard. Okay, so we're so we're back to that. So that's what I would disagree with. I think, yeah, the the statement is SMB financing is hard, and I really think it's not even disagree with. It's way too big of a generalization. I think the term SMB is something I disagree with. It's like describing ninety nine percent of our population with one word. You don't. You just don't do that, right? right? And so, so yeah, that makes sense. If you had to distill all of your great attributes down into one superpower, the thing that you do better than other folks. For me, it's really being able to stitch together kind of things that seem disparate into, you know, something that is coherent or make connections that don't necessarily seem obvious for the future. So kind of curious what your entrepreneurial superpower is. You know, that's such a hard question because entrepreneurs have so many superpowers that I think it's such a bold many, thing to say. Many hats, but what's one of the things that, you yeah. know. Oh, sorry. What I meant by that was not that I have so many superpowers. What I meant was there are people that are, there are so many entrepreneurs that are so good at so many things that I would never be so bold to say, this is my superpower. Like, I think there's probably 10,000 other people like me that have that superpower. If I went like so down to my core, I think it's going back to my high school dance days. I love performing. I in another life would have loved to be a performer of some sorts. And so I think I leverage that as my superpower in business, because I don't think there's as many people who love performing in business. And, and to me, being a performer means connecting with people's emotions, understanding when they're lighting up, leaning into that, being able to really connect with someone at, at a deep level and break things down that seem complex into things that are a, a bit more simple and getting joy out of all of that. And it's that performer that I think, like, I, I love a big meeting. I love a big presentation. So, yeah. That's very cool. All right. We're going to wrap it up with our typical speed round. So um, I think you are a consumer of lots of content. Is there a book, a podcast, or something that you're enjoying right now? I would say a book that I'm enjoying right now that I just read, I pick up and read is The Creative Act by Rick Rubin. Okay. 
I actually feel like recently it's been all over Instagram as like coffee table books, but it's not just a coffee table book. Pick it up and read it. I'm like halfway through it. I read a chapter like every other day or so. It's just a nice way to pull you out of your world and reshape how you can think creatively. I love it. If you could live anywhere in the world for one year, where would it be? I feel like I would want to do Australia. I would just want to be in nature and be in all types of nature. And I feel like Australia is just such a great place to do that. Beautiful place. Favorite productivity hack. I'm very excited to hear about this from you because I feel like you're a very responsive person. And when you want something like when we were talking about, I think PR and stuff, you just went at it full force. And so I was like, wow, this is, she's definitely has some skills here on organizing her time. (laughs) Thanks. Okay. I'll give something that's very, (laughs) very hacky. My phone screen is really clean. There's nothing really on there. And I basically only put the stuff on there that is like highest priority that I want to deal with at that point in time. And so when PR was a big priority, it was like there was a home screen thing related to it. So it was probably like a Google Doc with with PR stuff. And so my home screen is like my visual reminder of what's most important to me. And sorry, by home screen, I mean like when you unlock your iPhone. That's awesome. I like that. Just have it front and center without all the other distractions. Yeah. Okay. Well, where should our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at Neha Gove. You can also find me BTS on Bonside's Instagram, which is Bonside Inc. And Bonside's Twitter, which is also Bonside Inc. All right. We're just so thrilled to have you and congrats on all the success. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you listening, you might also be interested to learn about Everywhere. We're a first-check pre-seed fund that does exactly that. We invest everywhere. We're a community of 500 founders and operators, and we've invested in over 250 companies around the globe. Find us at our website, everywhere.vc, on LinkedIn, and through our regular founder spotlights on Substack. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll catch you on the next episode.